two of my kids are currently enrolled in Taekwondo. Um, and they recently got to Yellow Belt. And at Yellow Belt, we had to purchase all of these packs with helmets and pads for them. Prior to Yellow Belt, they were just learning kicks and punches and combinations. But at Yellow Belt, they started sparring, which is basically putting into practice these kicks and punches on each other. I do not think that I can describe to you how ridiculous they looked when they first started sparring. All these kids dressed head to toe in helmets and pads, chaotically kicking and punching at each other. It was all I could do to keep from laughing. But then a thought set in. What on earth is this going to accomplish? But I am not a master black belt. I do not know Taekwondo, let alone how to teach Taekwondo to small children. So I decided that I would just wait and see. And my patience paid off. It wasn't long before them actually doing these kicks and punches on each other where the kinks started to get worked out. There was something about it that over time they'd start to get pretty good at anticipating what their sparring partner was going to do and reacting. This impacted me more than I thought that it would. You see, I'm one of those people who can spend entirely too long up in my head on things, thinking them through, you know, planning, and I'm starting to wonder if that's a very good approach. Don't get me wrong, I still think thinking things through and planning are good, but at some point you have to actually just start doing something in order for the kinks to get worked out. This week's passage is all about worship. And has anyone ever started anything spiritual doing it well? Every spiritual discipline has us, at first, looking a lot like my kids in their first sparring match. So I think this gives us a little bit of comfort. You know, that's just how it is. We should expect that and not feel too bad about it. I found this week's passage immensely practical. But the practicality came in a form that was not obvious right away. Because on the one hand, much of this, this week's passage is not practical at all. We don't live in a time where animal sacrifices still occur. Even modern Judaism, they do not offer animal sacrifices. With the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD, all animal sacrifices ceased. What is immensely practical from this week's passage are the underlying principles that we learn about worship. So we're going to spend some time making sure we have a good understanding of this week's passage, but we're going to spend most of our time considering what the implications of this week's passage should have on the worship of modern believers. As we flip the page from chapter 27 to chapter 28, the first question we might ask ourselves is, why? Like, why would God choose to address offerings at this point in time? Well, last week, the God commanded the census that would be used to divide up the land among the different tribes, and Joshua was commissioned to lead the people into the promised land. And right away, God gives instructions about worship. So I can't help but think 
that God did this because gave these instructions before the people entered the promised land so that they would immediately put them into practice once they were in the promised land. When we look at the reasons why God was taking the land away from the current inhabitants, one of the things we see is that those people had worship practices that God found detestable. And eventually, the Israelites were going to be exiled from this land. They were going to be kicked out. And a large part of it had to do with worship practices that God found detestable. So we see that worship is important to God. As you studied Numbers 28 through 30, I hope that the first thing that you noticed is that this is almost entirely the words of God. Now, all of the Bible is God's word to humanity, but I like to pay particular attention to direct quotes from God. And this week's passage is almost entirely a direct quote from God. God's nature is unchanging. He is not surprised that we are reading all of these details thousands of years later. The fact that they are here indicate to us that God has purpose in them for us. God is big enough to use commands that he gave to the Israelites thousands of years ago to teach us principles just as applicable to us today. So as we look at the offerings, it is good to remember the purpose of offerings. The purpose of offerings was for the people to establish and maintain their relationship with God. This is not the first time that God gave instructions about offerings. Offerings are addressed in many other sections of scripture, the types of offerings and how to offer offerings. But the focus of this week's text is the timing of offerings. In order to maintain their relationship with God, the people had to offer specific offerings at specific times. First, God commanded daily offerings. Offerings were to occur in the morning and at twilight. Next, he commanded Sabbath offerings, which essentially was basically a weekly offering to happen on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is defined as the seventh day of the week. Biblical days start and end at sunset. So technically, the Sabbath goes from sunset on Friday until sunset on Saturday. The Sabbath was a day of rest. The work of any sort was forbidden. In fact, the punishment for working on the Sabbath was death. The Sabbath was so important that God promised to provide twice as much the day before the Sabbath so that the people could rest on the Sabbath. But here, God actually commands a double offering on Sabbath. The people were to give their normal, regular, everyday offerings, and they were also to offer another offering. I find this completely fascinating because God would not command something that he had previously forbidden. So the only logical conclusion that we can draw is that God must not view offering sacrifices to God as work. It was worship. 
So in addition to the weekly Sabbath offerings, God commanded monthly offerings. And those were to be offered at the beginning of every month. And finally, he commanded yearly offerings to be offered on specific days, the sacred assembly days. Let's dig a little bit more into the sacred assembly days. Again, this was not the first time that the Israelites received instruction about these days. They are sprinkled throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Leviticus 23 gives an overview of them all with more details given to some than others. We can assume that when these days came, the people would have done all of the commands that God gave regarding these sacred assembly days. But here, the focus is really just on the offerings, the fact that offerings occurred or were to occur on these days. And then we're given a little bit of information about each. But these days meant something to the Israelites. And their, their time and their energy and their focus would have been on certain things on these days. The Israelites would have had a very clear understanding of Passover. When the 10th plague hit in Egypt, the Israelites were spared physical death when they, in faith, painted the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts of their houses. Passover commemorates their redemption. Similarly, unleavened bread is consistently linked with the Israelites leaving their life of slavery in Egypt. So unleavened bread commemorates their salvation. The Festival of Weeks was seven weeks after the Festival of Unleavened Bread. So it coincided with them arriving at the base of Mount Sinai. So they likely would have associated this with when they received the Ten Commandments and when they entered into covenant with God. The Festival of Trumpets is a bit more obscure. Actually, there's not much said in the Bible about this festival other than that it was a day of trumpet blasts. Now, trumpets were sounded for a variety of reasons in the Israelites' camp. So a call to war, or a call to call a meeting, or as a warning. So perhaps they just saw this as a day to be alert. The Day of Atonement was the day where the high priest offered sacrifices, many sacrifices, for the people and the priesthood and the high priest and the altar and the holy place and the most holy place. The high priest only went into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, only with blood, in order to make atonement. Everyone and everything was cleansed on the Day of Atonement. The Festival of Shelters was a joyous festival. It coincided with one of their harvests, and God commanded the Israelites to live in shelters so that the, their future generations would remember that God had them live in shelters when they came out of Egypt. So it sort of is linked to their time in the wilderness. A large part of the regular worship of God centered around offerings. And you can see from this rough tally that a very large number of offerings were offered over the course of a year in order for the people to maintain their relationship with God. The placement of chapter 30, which gives us some regulations about vows, may seem odd, but it's not really because vows typically had offerings associated with them. So when you made a vow, you had some offerings that you needed to give, and that's probably why it's located here. 
Vows were typically made in response to dire situations, like an agreement with God. Hey, God, if you do this for me, then I will do this. The first thing we should notice is that God takes vows very seriously. Look at what he said in verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever he has promised. I realize that it may have rubbed some of us the wrong way, that in this section of scripture, it seems like God might have a different standard for men than for women. But I want to point out that God's direction for divorced and widowed women, it was pretty much the same as for men. Look at verse 9. Every vow a widow or divorced woman puts herself under is binding on her. So why the exception for young or married women? In this culture at this time, women who were married or who were young were under the authority of their father or their husband unless they didn't have a father or a husband. I actually think it's very kind and very wise for God to be very explicit about his expectations for women who are under the authority of their husband or their father. You see, God still allowed women to make vows, but he provided a way if their husband or their father forbid them from fulfilling it for them to not be held accountable. Imagine the stress a woman would feel if she made a vow to the Lord, realizing how seriously God takes vows, and then her husband or her father forbid her from doing it. She would have been in a very difficult situation. Instead, God lets a husband or a father cancel a vow. And if he does, he doesn't hold the woman responsible. But you still see here that God even, he makes it clear that men have to take this seriously too. A man only had the opportunity to cancel a vow when he first heard about it. He couldn't let it go on indefinitely and then cancel it. If he did that, he would be responsible for breaking the vow, not her. Vows are serious. And even nowadays, people may be tempted to make vows to God. But vows are also risky. And we saw, Jesus pointed out, that we can't possibly know all of the implications our vows have. It's much safer to just bring our requests to God humbly through prayer or fasting. So now that we have a pretty good understanding of this week's passage, let's take a step back and look at the implications a passage like this should have on the worship of believers. The first thing we should notice is that God was extremely specific about what he would accept as offerings. If God was specific about what animals and grains and drinks he would accept from the Israelites, shouldn't we assume that he is also specific about what he will accept as offerings from us? Throughout this week's passage, reference was made to a sin offering, an offering to make atonement for the people's sins. And just like God was specific about what that offering had to be, God is also specific about what we must offer as a sin offering. The New Testament makes it clear that Jesus Christ is our sin offering. 
that he has made atonement for us. But throughout this week's passage, God commanded more than just a sin offering. We saw many different types of offerings. And they were to be offered to God at regular times in order for the people to maintain their relationship with God. So after we enter into relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are to continue worshiping God. And that maintains our relationship with God. I like this definition that I found of worship. Anything we do that declares the worth of the Lord, deepens our relationship with him, or urges others to follow him. So when we sing songs declaring the excellency of God, we are worshiping. When we tell people what God has done for us, we are worshiping. When we focus our attention on God through Bible reading, Bible study, prayer, fasting, whatever spiritual discipline, we are worshiping. When we give financially to church and parachurch organizations, we are worshiping. When we serve God by serving others, we are worshiping. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 4:24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Worship that is pleasing to God will be grounded in the truth, what we find in Scripture, and it will be prompted by the Spirit of God. The next thing that we should notice is that in addition to being specific about the content of worship, God was very specific about the timing of worship. If God told the Israelites exactly when to worship. Every morning, every evening, every Sabbath, at the beginning of every month, and on specific days that he chose. Shouldn't we assume that that might be a good rhythm for our worship as well? This section of numbers has really challenged me about the rhythm of my worship. You see, some of these things I put into practice. I try to pray every morning and evening. I try to observe Sabbath and the sacred assembly days. But I've got a lot of room for growth in all of those areas. And I have never at ever paid attention to the first of the month at all. But these are the times that God emphasizes. So wouldn't it be good for us to? So... God emphasized these times, morning and evening, the first of the month. Those are not very hard to understand. But let's take a moment to circle back to Sabbath and the sacred assembly days. First Sabbath, we drew the conclusion earlier that God must not view presenting offerings to God as work because God would not command something that he had forbidden. Over time, the nation of Israel, as they emphasized Sabbath, they became more and more restrictive with what could be done on the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus consistently had run-ins with the religious leaders of his day regarding Sabbath, what constituted work. But Jesus, God incarnate, the only sinless one, did many things on Sabbath. 
He taught on the Sabbath. He read the Torah in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He healed people on the Sabbath. He forgave sins on the Sabbath. And Jesus said in Matthew 12, 12, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Worship is not work. Sabbath is a time for us to rest from our everyday activities. But the Israelites gave a double offering on Sabbath, twice the amount of worship. So perhaps Sabbath is a time for us to do twice as much of those activities that we previously counted as worship. Anything that declares the worth of the Lord, deepens our relationship with him, or urges others to follow him. Next, let's discuss the sacred assembly days. The sacred assembly days meant something very specific to the Israelites, and they would have had their attention drawn to specific things on those days. We stand at a very interesting point in history because we now know that important events during the first coming of Jesus happened exactly on sacred assembly days. He was killed on Passover. He was buried, defeated death, rose from the dead during the festival of unleavened bread. And he sent the Holy Spirit to believers on the festival of weeks. The fact that such big events happened exactly on sacred assembly days has caused people to wonder what events might happen in Christ's second time coming on these days as well. So obviously the end times is a uh, confusing topic, right? (laughs) There's lots of prophecy in the Bible about it. Um, And I think that we should probably hold all of our guesses pretty lightly here. Because anyone who has read prophecy knows that prophecy is obscure. Now that should not cause us not to read prophecy. Because I firmly believe that if we neglect any area of God's word, it is to our detriment. But we read it not having the same expectation we might have for other sections. We read it because we believe that God put it here for a reason and that he has purpose in it for us. We read it and we let God do in our understanding whatever he wants to do over time. The important thing is that we just know what the Bible says. And I want to emphasize that because there are many people that claim many things about the return of Christ in the end times that simply are not in the Bible. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're not. We are most protected when we simply know what the Bible says. So, Looking at prophecy related to the end times, related to Christ's return, and also looking at information sprinkled throughout the Bible about the Festival of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Festival of uh, Shelters, (laughs) has caused people to sort of try and align what might happen on those three festival days. And I don't have near enough time. There's so much to to go into on that. Um, and you can, if you're interested, you can go look at it yourself. But 
it's caused some guesses, and most people guess around the same thing. So, for instance, let's consider the Festival of Trumpets. If you remember, not much is said in the Bible about the Festival of Trumpets, other than it is a day of trumpet blasts. In the New Testament, trumpet blasts are included in Scripture that talks about believers being caught up in the air to meet Christ. So for that reason, people guess that maybe what is commonly referred to as the rapture of the church may happen on some future festival of trumpets. Another guess people have about the Day of Atonement is that this might coincide with Christ's actual physical return to the Mount of Olives. And also regarding the Festival of Shelters, people guess that it might have something to do with the Millennial Kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth after his return but before the new heaven and the new earth. But these are all just guesses. I think they're pretty educated guesses, but they're guesses nonetheless. We now know that God had purpose in having the Israelites worship and direct their attention to specific things on these days. And I believe that God has purpose for us in these days as well. Ever since I learned about how these festivals point to the person and work of Jesus Christ, my family has been trying to observe them. Now, when I say observe them, I do not mean trying to do them exactly as stated in the Bible. It's impossible. You can't do everything that the Bible commands about them. I also do not mean observing them like modern Judaism observes them. Instead, we just aim to stick closely to what the Bible says. Do some of the commands, the ones that we can, and focus our attention on what seems to be the purpose of each. I have found that something comes from actually doing some of these commands, a day of rest, a specific meal, not eating anything leavened, eating unleavened bread. Something comes from that that I couldn't get just from studying. I am well aware that when I talk about actually doing the commands of God, some people may become a little bit nervous that I might be trying to earn my salvation. So let me just assure you, as a person that takes the commands of God seriously and does try to put them into practice in my life, that I find it sort of funny that anyone could think this. Because anyone who tries to do any of these things is made very well aware of the fact that they are not doing them very well at all. I can assure you that my pitiful attempts at Sabbath or the sacred assembly days very much look like a six-year-old yellow belt sparring for the first time. <laughs> My goal for doing any of the commands of God is not to earn anything. I'm not working. I'm worshiping. I firmly believe that salvation is found only in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and I am eternally grateful for that. The reason I endeavor to do any of God's commands is because I believe God. I believe that God is good and that he tells me to do things that are for my good. I believe Jesus when he said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So when God draws my attention to a command, 
I view it more as an invitation. And I have been shocked at what God has revealed to me when I simply take him up on his invitations. Commands have been a means through which God has been very real and very active in my life, where I have heard from him and received practical instructions from him. I have never been tempted to become proud. Actually, I am consistently humbled. And my view of God is consistently elevated. So the more I have engaged God, the better off I have been. And so for that reason, I will stand up here and implore you to take God up on his invitations. Regarding the sacred assembly days, these days work on three levels. They relate to events in the nation of Israel. They point to God's redemptive plan through his son, Jesus Christ. And they also teach us about the spiritual life of a believer. So I think that proper observance of them are going to take into account how we can observe them in spirit and in truth. May put into practice some of the commands, but look to understand what God's purpose is in each of them. Besides a day of rest here and there and a couple other commands, there aren't actually that many commands. And if we look closely at what God says about them, we can start to see his purpose in them. Passover is the first sacred assembly. It teaches us that everything starts with our redemption. We can observe Passover by remembering that God gave his only son to redeem us. We can remember the day that we accepted his redemption. Unleavened bread is the second assembly. After the Israelites were redeemed. They had to leave their life of slavery in Egypt. After we are redeemed, we must leave our life of slavery to sin. Unleavened bread is a time where we can remember all the sins that God has freed us from. The Festival of Weeks, it's all about covenant. We can celebrate the festival by considering the new covenant that God sealed us with his very spirit, that he has written his laws on our hearts, that he uses his word and his spirit to transform us. We can remember ways that we have been transformed. And the fall festivals all point to the return of Christ. We can look closely at what the Bible says about that. The return of Christ is going to be bittersweet. On the one hand, we look forward to it as, as believers, but it is a time where all of our, it will be very sad for all of our unsaved family and friends. So it can be a time for us to pray about them. We can do whatever God directs our attention to. We can repent, we can uh, pray, we can study, whatever. I have loved how God has directed and expanded my thoughts about all of these things as I've paused over time to consider them. I love what he brings to mind, and every year it is something different. Anyone who pauses their busy life on these sacred assembly days is guaranteed to think about things like their salvation, their sanctification, and the return of Christ at least once a year. 
I can remember when it occurred to me that most believers fall into one of two extremes when you talk about the end times or the return of Christ. Most are either oblivious or they are obsessed. Now hear me, I have been in both camps, so I'm not being critical. But I really don't think that God wants us oblivious, and I don't think he wants us obsessed. Pausing on these days and thinking about these things once a year has kept me from extremes in many areas. I realize that this lesson had some information that may have been brand new to some of you. I can remember being very overwhelmed when I first learned about these things. And I'm completely convinced that the most important thing is just to start wherever you are, start small, let it grow. If you have never paused on any of these days, that would be a good thing to just know when they are and to pause. So here, let me help you. This is when the Sacred Assembly Days are this year. Passover is this Friday. It's a great time to remember your own redemption story, or better yet, tell it to somebody. Maybe you want to have a Passover meal. Roasted lamb, unleavened bread, bitter herbs. Unleavened bread starts on Saturday and lasts one week. It's a great time to remember all of the sins that God has freed you from over the course of your life as a believer. And it's a good time for us to pray about the areas that we still feel enslaved to. I've gotten so much out of following the commands to eat unleavened bread every single day and not eat anything leavened. It's taught me so much about how to search for and get rid of sin in my life. And of course, this Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that his sacrifice, it defeated sin and death for us, and that his resurrection guarantees our own. The thing that so clearly stands out to me from this section of scripture is that God-ordained worship has a rhythm to it. And we see it so clearly when it's laid out on a chart for us. Look at the offerings, how they were distributed. They were mostly evenly distributed with extra emphasis on certain days, mostly in the spring and mostly in the fall. I think this gives us a good goal for how we can distribute our worship. I look at this and I see the gaps that I need to close. Before having kids, I was a project manager. Project managers spend a lot of time planning out their projects, but every project manager knows that you cannot hand your team a set of plans, let them go off, and come back later. If you do that, you will most assuredly end up with something altogether different than what you were planning. It is absolutely essential to check in frequently. I wonder if this isn't why God gives such a complete schedule for worship. When we check in with God regularly, we're able, he's able to direct us back onto the path if maybe we've gotten a little bit off. 
As we conclude today, the rhythm of our worship matters. It is how we maintain and grow our relationship with God. I hope each of you walks away from this lesson and presses into whatever area God has drawn your attention to. Maybe you want to focus on prayer or worship every morning or evening. Maybe you're drawn to Sabbath or the sacred assembly days. Whatever it is, I'm a firm believer that each of us should just follow God's lead. As he draws our attention somewhere, we should just start putting it into practice. Trusting him, trusting the process. That just like my kids with their taekwondo sparring, that over time the kinks will get worked out. 